Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. Welcome back. Today's conversation is one that I'm really excited for you to listen to. You know, when you start to talk to a friend or a colleague and you've read a lot of the same books and you've been thinking about a lot of the same challenges and issues, well, that's what today's conversation was for me. So I hope you really enjoy uh, listening to and learning from Todd Bolsinger. Today, we're here with Todd Bolsinger, who is the author of Canoeing the Mountains, which I think I've heard more Christian leaders quote Ronald Heifetz because of Todd Bolsinger's book than Ronald Heifetz's book, uh, because he does such a great job integrating leadership theory into what we as Christian leaders do. And so, what I love about it is that Todd's pushing for more missional professionals, people that learn from the research that's out there and then apply it in ways that are meaningful to the different contexts that they're in, whether it's the church or business or in schools. And so at the center of Todd's model, he has this transformational leadership piece that uh, is required when we're off the map. And he draws on Lewis and Clark's expedition to find wisdom for leaders today. Uh, He's just recently written Tempered Resilience, which seems like a great follow-up to Canoeing the Mountains because of the way these three overlapping circles he talks about around adaptive capacity, technical competence, and relational congruence fit. And so I think that's a really helpful model for thinking about leadership today. Um, All the leaders I talk to, particularly those in schools, have different strengths and weaknesses in these three areas. So, Todd, since writing the book, you've talked to many groups, uh, and you're actually speaking to people from Baylor uh, in just a couple days. Uh, In general, which of these areas do you find is the hardest for people to grasp? And then which ones seem to resonate the most with leaders? Well, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question, John, because um, I think this, the challenge here is that almost every Christian leader is deeply connect, committed, especially to what we call relational congruence. Um, that's the idea of character. You're the same. You show up as the same person wherever you find us. And especially if you think about this in terms of like Christian school leaders, you know, Every teacher will talk about the fact that they run into their kids in the neighborhood, in the, they run into their families at the soccer field. You, you are part of the community. That's one of the great parts about serving an education. And we know that when there's no relational congruence, when the character falls off, when the congruence is there, it's over. It's like an eject button. It's done. So we spend a lot of time on that. And then as professionals, we work on technical competence. I mean, we really want to do a good job at our job and we want to be a good teacher and a good administrator, a good school leader. Right now we're working, my company's working with two schools um, even right now, besides the the conversations I'm having with Baylor on occasion and, and everybody's there. The problem isn't technical competence and relational congruence. The problem is thinking that technical competence and relational congruence is enough. What right. technical competence and relational congruence do is it builds trust and trust is really, really important, but trust is not transformation. You have to invest trust Mm, in transformation. And that's what adaptive capacity is about. It's about the way in which you bring transformation that is needed because of the changing environment. And that's the part that most people struggle with. 
Right. Love that. And I think that's the world that we're in now. And you, you talk that we're in an off the map world world for Christendom. And so if you don't have that adaptive capacity, which is, I think, Heifetz's great contribution to mm-hmm. leadership literature is that idea when the problem and solution aren't fully known, how do you lead in a way that you can build on the trust and the re- mm-hmm. relational congruence, but then you have to do that work. So, um, you have this definition on page 156 uh, that I really like uh, about leadership. You say, I define leadership as energizing a community of people toward their own transformation in order to accomplish a shared mission in the face of a new world. And so you, you have this. And so where do you see organizations doing this well? Mm-hmm. And then maybe on the flip side, why do organizations seem to resist this definition of leadership? Well, the it's it's built into it, right? So if leadership is energizing your own people toward their own transformation, then that means you have to have a conversation with everybody who's part of your people. Especially if you think about this, you're a school leader, you got to talk to teachers. Hey, we need you not just to be a good teacher. We actually need you to be a good teacher, but we also need you to be an adaptive teacher. As the world changes, we're going to have to adapt. And that's going to be a conversation we're going to have that where we've got to start with discernment. What are we not adapting? Because it is so core to our values that we're holding on to it. But then what are we willing to adapt? And the hard part is, you know, especially in, you know, those of us who do education, one of the things that that is really hard is all the prep. It's all like we love being in front of the classroom. It's the prep that gets us. I'm I'm teaching three doctoral seminars right now um, for Fuller, and I've had to prep and reprep them. So when you come to me and tell me that I have to adapt some things, it doesn't make me happy. (laughs) Right. And so, so that becomes the challenge. The challenge is how do you actually keep um, adapting to the changing environment? And especially when we don't know the best practice. So the huge center of adaptive leadership is that there you're in an adaptive moment when you don't have a best practice, which means the leader or the teacher has to become the learner all the time. You're leading the learning while you're actually learning on the job. I would say I love putting together syllabi. There's something fun in that generative act where I struggle, where the, the hardest part for me is when I'm seeing you know, 50 to 100 or 150 students is adapting that for each student because that's the feedback piece because feedback is both for the student and for the instructor and so that constant adaption makes teaching infinitely interesting and infinitely complex because the way you come to it the way you understand it the only thing you know is you're the only person in the world who comes to that understanding in exactly that same way and so how do you do that well and so you have this point that i thought was really well taken to the book where you tell you say that leaders give the work back to the people who care about it the most Mm -hmm. so at the core of the education enterprise you have the teacher-student relationship that's the core and so the the question is though how do you see that play out in reality? Where do you see mm-hmm. organizations doing that well? Because I think we know this, but I think then it's really hard for leaders to mm-hmm. relinquish that control or there's fear. You talk a lot about this in, in the book, but uh, where do you see that happening well? Mm-hmm. Well, where it's happening well is when everybody understands they are all part of a collective problem solving. So if you yeah. think about this in the K-12 environment, this means administrators, teachers, parents, and students all have to work together and have a clear understanding of the goal. So 
Um, I, I'm working with a church uh, school right now that has put in its mission statement that it sees itself as an elite academic environment, prepping students for the best colleges in the country. When you go ask parents, which is what we did, we were hired to go ask parents. What the parents said was, yeah, their academics are really important to us, but you know what's really important? Well, whenever you get a what's really important, you stop and take notes, right? And what we got right. was, what we got from them was, look, we don't, they, they happen to draw the kind of kids who are all going to go to college, but many of them are not going to go to elite colleges. There are prep schools in their town. These are parents who can afford to send their kids to a prep school who instead send it to this school. So why? Because they said what was more important to us was that we were in an environment where our Christian values, a sense of character, our kids were known, um, that there was like there were all these other values that are deeply important in the learning process, right? But it's so hard to actually say to each other, look, our students aren't necessarily going to be Ivy League. They're going to be good, productive, many of them collegiates. Not all of them are going to go on to colleges. But so our core value is now this rather than that. And that puts us in this area of competing values. And that's where the challenge lies. It's having to name and navigate the competing value. And that's difficult because that's an ego hit for some of us. And it's an identity hit for some of us, but it's, it's really important. You give the work back when you all agree, here's what we're trying to accomplish. This is our mission. This is actually what we're about. This is actually the gift of this school. And so because it is, we're going to be together in this, which means we're all going to be adapting to that. Right. And so my work has all been on collective leadership and the way teachers and administrators lead together toward shared yep. goals. And that's why I love your point about the mission being the clear, this is the thing that's the filter of what we do and what we don't do. It's got to go through that idea of mission. And just saw this when you mentioned what you said about the school you're working with, the, with the prep schools in the same town. Just today, a survey came out, which uh, through a Massachusetts-based think tank that preparation for college or university was rated by parents of K-12 students as 47th out of 57th in what they mm. think is most important, which as a college professor that gives me pause and in 2019 it was 10th so the pandemic has shifted the way we view education at least temporarily maybe maybe permanently but that it's got to be about more than just academic preparation which we've always known and as christians if you believe that as an educator you walk alongside a created being and it's your privilege to help them become more of who they were called to be that's certainly academics are a part of that you can't be a great teacher teaching first grade if you aren't teaching kids how to read you're not loving the kid right. well if you aren't doing that but there's way more to it than that and so yeah. i think that complexity makes education education really interesting, but also really hard. And so you said this that I also I think relates to this kind of getting off the map. Leadership in the past means meant coming up with solutions. Today, it's asking questions that we've been too scared, too busy, or too proud to ask. And so then you get into the adaptive leadership piece. So what questions do you think Christian leaders in education should be asking? So we don't necessarily have the solutions, but what are the good questions you've been hearing Christians, whether it's higher ed or K-12, what are the good questions we should be asking? Well, one of them is, uh, in one sense, what is our what is our calling? 
Mm-hmm. What is our calling? What's what's our? But we often say this with institutions. We talk about, and I got this from a a, col- a Christian college president in Canada who said the question we ask is, "What is our charism?" Mm-hmm. Charism is a Catholic word. It talks about your sense of your unique gift, and that you know Catholic orders are all under the Catholic Church. But a Benedictine and a Jesuit and a Franciscan will have a very different calling. Because it's built on what they believe their gift is, the gift they give to the church, the gift they give to the world. I often say to people, the first thing we should get really clear in is what is our charism? What's our gift? What is it that we contribute to the body of Christ, to the community, to you know whoever, whatever ecosystem we find ourselves in? And then ask ourselves the question from then, how is anxiety deforming our charism? <laughs> Because in a highly, one of the things we've learned over COVID was anxiety and the anxiety that people feel like how to keep the school open, how to keep a church alive, how to keep business alive. It's got us tweaking. We say, oh, that's our, we have to adapt. What we're adapting to is we're adapting to our inner anxiety, not toward the actual changed world. And I think one of the questions for us to get really clear, this is why we say, I love your idea of collective leadership, because it's what we do. We call people up onto the balcony and get a a chance to look at the larger system and say, what is it that we are here to do? What is our calling? What's our charism as a school? Um, And what is the gift that we keep bringing to to this work? And how is anxiety shifting that and shaping that and maybe even malforming or deforming that? Yeah. And so I think that's where you have this little four part saying that you say over and over to yourself. And we should be saying, start with conviction, stay calm, stay mm-hmm. connected, stay the course. And as I read that, I was like, that's great to apply as an individual, but even better to apply as a team. So how do we, how do we come to that? Because then that gets into Jim Collins hedgehog concept mm-hmm. that's, that, that's out there. You know, what are we passionate about? What can we do better than anyone else? Uh, what will pay the bills? And so the question is, I, I feel like this is this has been known for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. good to great's been out for a long time, and people talk about this, but I don't see Christian organizations particularly doing this very well. So I guess where you have seen this, because you now do these consulting mm-hmm. pieces where you've been out, and they've even read your book, and they have that mm-hmm. in addition to good to great and and Heifetz's work and other other work, but. Where are you optimistic about this actually playing out? Do you see churches doing this well? Do you mm-hmm. see schools doing this well? Where Where's the hope on this hedgehog concept? Mm-hmm. Well, the hope is where people not just, I mean, what, what most every school I know does is it sits down and it discovers what their hedgehog is. They'll all sit down yes. and they'll ask. They'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. What yes. they don't do is make decisions based on it. <laughs> like, like, fair, fair. Right? Like, yes. like, like, um, and so, I mean, I love that, co- that sense of the hedgehog concept. I think it's a really helpful way of getting to that sense of charism. We, ha- we have another way we do it, which is where we tell people to start with their values. Um, whenever we start with an organization, we actually ask them to tell stories about why this organization matters to you. We literally, I'm, I'm pushing, I'm putting my hands on my heart because when people tell these kinds of stories, they hold their hearts. And it's almost always in a school, it's almost always a story about a teacher. This teacher was this. This teacher did this. I'm here. I'm bringing my kids here because when I was a kid, I was here and Mrs. Juarez knew my name and she could pronounce my name. You know, my name is not a, a common name and she could pronounce it. She, that's what I remember, right? That 
so critical when you have those core values and you go from those values to your charism. Our values are the expression. Our um, our charism is the, is the expression of our values as a gift to the world. When we do that, and then we start making decisions. And this is the hard part. Decision is related to the word incision. A decision has not been made until something is cut away. And I can tell you, I have hope where I see lots of stuff being cut away. We always talk about experimenting and trying new things, but those experiments are meant to give us lessons that we then prune back. It's like letting a tree Mm -hmm. grow so we can prune it. So that combination of clarity of charism and courage in decision-making is the key model for being able to move forward. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. And I have to say that resonates with me. And I have to also, as I always, I share with people, I've written a lot of books and articles and, you know, academics, we mm-hmm. write things that maybe yep. 80, pe- 80 people read and right, you, right. Have, you have to feel good about that. But the most read thing I've ever written was a blog for George Lucas's site, Edutopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The Know and Innovate. And my contention is basically places would get a lot better if they just identified three things to stop doing and then they didn't do anything else, just start yeah. there b- before you start adding anything. And and that came out now like six or seven years ago. And that's, I think, sadly, still the most read thing I've ever written. Um, well, because- it's, uh, let me, John, let, John, let me say yeah. it's not sad. Yeah. It, the reason why it's okay. the most read thing is because it's the hardest thing for most of us. Right. You know, like the hard fair. thing for, okay. le- we get into leadership and we get praised. We never get praised for telling people no. Yes. So we get, especially I think as Christians, I think we sometimes think God is blessing us when everybody's happy. And then you go back and read the scriptures and realize how often the Christian leaders had to say, I mean, Jesus had to look them in the eye when they said, we don't want to go. We don't want to go to Bethany. We don't want to go. We're sorry that Lazarus died. We don't want to go. They treated you terrible last time we were there. And he said, we're going. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, that's a great point. Thank you for that reframe. Bowman and Deal would be proud. So there you go. The, uh, <laughs> the, the, um, the, the next thing you say, and I, I'm curious if this is a way to help with the decision-making process, because at the Center for School Leadership here at Baylor, this is what we do with schools. We, pour, we force them into this improvement science uh, thinking that comes out of the Carnegie Foundation at Stanford. Are you familiar with their work at all? The Carnegie? The, not as well as you are, a little bit, but okay. not as much. Yeah. Okay. So, so to me, that's the best hope for schools because it's it's impacted businesses, it's ha- impacted healthcare, it's been slow to get into education because education's complex. There are reasons why it's hard to create a scorecard in yes. education to say, here's what we care about. But you have this statement on 125, the focus shared missional purpose of the organization will trump every other competing value. Indeed, experimental innovations are the key to surviving in a changing world. And so we do these 90 day cycles where we, we get schools together, we do it in, in June, we'll have 250 school leaders together. They'll network with each other. They'll come up with a common problem of practice that they're going to work on. And then they commit to meeting each month with at least one teacher and administrator from each school to track their progress against the goal about something they really deeply care about, your charism piece. It's got to be huge. It's got to be important. And it's in one of three buckets, student well-being, student engagement, student feedback. Because to me, that's the heart and soul Mm -hmm. of teaching. That's the simple 
That's the mission of a teacher. And so it has to fit in one of those three buckets and you have to care about it. And then you've got to get measures that you can observe that you report every month. You're not allowed to get on the call if you haven't already input your data into the spreadsheet. And we do that for 90 days and then they reset the next goal. So based on what they found, they then set the next goal. So you're not making a lifelong commitment to this. It's where are we going to be at in 90 days? Does it fit in what our values are? And are we making progress? Have you seen anybody using this with, I call it disciplined inquiry because yeah. it's inquiry into what's working and it's disciplined and it's with others, yeah. which I think is, is the secret sauce. Have you seen that work well? Uh, and what do you think about the idea in general, just as, as much as well, you're familiar the, with it? I, I love the idea because we do a very similar thing with churches and what we call ad our adaptive church leadership cohorts. We have both okay. uh, the adaptive church leadership cohorts and we have an online version called the online adaptive capacity cohorts where we take churches through a similar process. Here's the challenge. I'll tell you the question that I would want to ask all your folks is before you you finish and start, okay, here's our goal for the next 90 days. Put down one thing you are not going to do. So you have time to do this. And I got to tell you for yeah. my, in my work with churches, that is the, every single time that's the rub. If they don't tell me what they're not going to do, I know they're not going to do it <laughs> because they're right. already too busy. They're already too exhausted. And so th that's the hardest part. Well, and you probably are familiar. Keegan, Keegan and Leahy's Immunity to Change yeah. book, which builds up. Are you right. familiar with Immunity to Change? Oh. Yeah. So uh, our first tool in the suite is not even for the team, what you're going to stop doing. It's what is an individual are you going to stop life. doing? Yeah. And so we do this immunity map that they have to go through. And every time now what I've realized is I have to model it for my audiences. So these are people that I don't know. And I'm having to lay out why I'm going to avoid changing in a way that will not allow me to create space for what my team needs for me to do in the organization. And so but I'll just give you my quick, here's what it is. I always identify the fact that I don't prioritize the right things. And I do that because of an identity issue. And what it boils down to is I, I, I say, I'm going to prioritize my relationship with God first, family second, students third. Everything else filters out through that. Now, there are competing pressures on me as an endowed chair, full professor to bring in research grants, produce research, run all the things through the center that I get a lot of meaning out of because it feeds my performance Enneagram three, wing two, personality type. And so that comes into it. And when I get to the last step of the immunity map, you have to say what your hidden competing priorities are and what those assumptions are. And what it boils down to is this. If I prioritize God, family, and students first, God will not accomplish his mission through me on this earth <laughs> is what it boils down to because I have so over-prioritized my performance is what gives me value that I don't prioritize God, family, and students first. And so this is this. And so I completely agree. If we don't identify as a team what we're going to stop, you're not going to make progress. And if you as an individual don't stop some things, you've got no additional margin for the mission that you're called to. So have you had any success getting people to eliminate some, some of their performance uh, needs as an individual or whatever it is that keeps them up at night? A have you seen that happen or have you seen it work better with doing it with teams first? Do you think we need to start with the individual or do you think we, need, we can start with the team? Well, it's so interesting because I do exactly, my, if my doctoral students are listening to this, they're all giggling because they've watched me do that exact same thing with them. Okay. And I tell them okay. the same thing, we're going to start with you before we do it to your team. Okay. And I literally lay out my my issues also. My my giant one literally is, I'm a guy who's, I'm a 
I've been a full-time pastor before I was, and I'm a leadership coach, I'm a reverend doctor, and literally my last bucket says, productivity is more important than prayer. Like that's my hidden problem. Like, <laughs> yes, like that's the, yes, like that's the thing that yes. I and I come back to him and say, so what? How do I attack that big mis- that big myth, that underlying thing that is just like driving me? So I can so I can show how false it is that my prayer life it needs to be prioritized for my productivity. What we've learned is asking people to make a big decision at that moment doesn't work, but asking them to take to do small experiments yes, around yes. it. Yes. So, so partly what groups that work and and the same thing we're talking about, the groups that work get really clear about the reflection and get really humble about how much change they can make, make one step, take a small step, take a small step. And so, so I'll give you one example from the church world. I'm working with a church that has basically talked about the fact that its mission statement has been really about the way in which they live out their faith in their community to inspire the world with the love of Jesus. What they, they're a more progressive church. So they actually put in their mission statement. We want to inspire the world with the inclusive love of Jesus. Like they knew that would be a, that would be like a a lightning rod, but they said, that's our conviction. When I started talking with them about, so what's hindering you from living out that mission? What they finally got to is they said in our church, Jesus is more controversial than inclusive. And I went, really, that's my first thing. So tell me about that. They said, we have such a temptation. That's a progressive church, right? I work across the spectrum. I work across the spectrum. They said, we have a temptation to be people who like baptize our social work, our social mission. We baptize social justice instead of actually go deep into like the formative practices like a Dr. King did with the civil rights movement. So what we need is to do that. And I said, so what are you going to stop doing? They go, how do we stop doing any of these initiatives that are so important? And so what we did is we made a deal. We said for the next year, while you deepen your connection to Jesus, you will not add any more programs. Just your experiment. Don't add any more programs. Don't add any more people. Don't add any more staff. Just start every meeting, starting with taking 90 seconds of silence and asking the question, so where have you seen Jesus? Right. And if you're not sure, then I would encourage you to read some scriptures and see what Jesus might do if he showed up in this area. Where have you seen Jesus at work in your community, in your life? And and that we literally, what we taught them is, the prayer of examine is what we taught us yes. was yeah. how to reflect on the presence of God in their midst, how to lean into that and how to make decisions based on it. And at the end of every meeting, they ask the same question. How did we experience the spirit of Jesus leading us in this meeting? Wow. So w- they didn't add a single minute to their time. They cut yeah. three minutes of their business agenda to add this reflective prayer. And that began to make some change. Well, and I think that's why James Clear sold 100 million copies of Atomic Habits, yeah. because he hit on these biblical principles. To me, that book, which is, which is a great book, but it boils down to two things. Identity over self-control, which we all know that our identity is in Christ. We're not going to self-control our way to sanctification. Uh, we, we find our identity in Christ. And then the second thing is habits over goals. And that, yeah. that's the whole book. And that's the spiritual disciplines over setting a goal to be more sanctified down the road. It's like, what are we going to do each day that's the small atomic thing that may have these big goals? And so I thought one thing that I, I think helps, this has helped me reframe, and I end the book, I have a book that comes out 
this week called Just Teaching Feedback, Engagement, and Well-Being for Each Student. And it mm-hmm. ends with the, the end of the, the, the epilogue is life-giving obituaries. And mm-hmm. your chapter 11 is take a good look in the coffin. Mm-hmm. And you have this great quote there from Heifetz. But how does that kind of looking at the uh, our mortality and the ephemeral nature of life how does that lead to what i think you're talking about in canoeing the mountains but what you get into more in tempered resilience where, where do you see that having hel- helping people reframe how they look at their yeah. time yeah well one of the parts is they have to be honest about it i mean so think about this if it's if you're if you think about eulogy virtues david brooks talks about the difference yeah. between yeah. resume virtues and eulogy virtues when you think about eulogy virtues everybody says uh, you know i want to be respected and loved by my children i want to have a good marriage i want to have good friends and yet there's a secret part of this and i also want to be highly respected in my guild <laughs> right? mm, and right, i also right. want to be i would like to have had a best selling book right? <laughs> like any of us in academics right we right. sell like right. like like i i i have one book that is sold it's ridiculous i don't even i'm not even used to that notion because i'm an <laughs> academic i i read books nobody read i write books nobody reads so so right. so we what we then have to grapple with is shorten the eulogy once you yeah. lay them all out there what is the the if you put them in order what are you willing to let go again we're back to the no we're back to the centralizing the hedgehog i think the same thing's true uh when we look back at our lives i i i'm in the middle you know i'm on an never-ending journey to be more physically fit. I come from a family that gets pretty unhealthy as they get older. My dad is 80 and he can't move hardly. And Mm -hmm. when they asked me what my goal is, I said, my goal is when I'm in my 80s, I want to ski with my grandkids. I don't even have grandkids yet. My kids are not in a hurry. Uh (laughs) Like like they're going to be. So so I'm, when I'm 80, I want to ski with my grandkids. So, So that means that when I'm 58, I think about how I got to move every day and I think about what I got to do to be able to, to be healthy with my diet and healthy with my life. Like having those long-term goals when it boils down to something so tangible that begins to affect your daily presence, you know, your daily um, activity, that's the goal. Um, I would say the goal is not to have the Mr. Holland's opus moment at the end of your right. life where you realize right. what you did. The goal is right. to intentionally plan and live your life so that you'll have that at the end. Right. And I think it's about the journey along the way. It's not all at the end. I want to recognize the blessings that I have on a daily basis that keep me moving, keep me active, enjoying those things and leaning into that. But I think you do hit this resistance that you talk about in Tempered Resilience, which I think is helpful. And it's the only way we actually build resilience. It's not a fun way to do it, but that's, you know, we always talk about people needing to get a backbone and that's what you have. Well, it's, you don't actually need to get a backbone. You need muscles that build up around your backbone. And that only right. happens through resistance training. And that means you're going to have adversity. And so I, I love the way you kind of evolve the story from canoeing the mountains to tempered resilience. So we may have to talk about that, that book more later, but uh, I, I really to. like, I really like the way that the metaphor from Prague that you came across this. And I've never mm-hmm. seen anybody doing that tempering uh, metal and pounding it, but it is such a good lesson for Christians right now that that's part of becoming more like Christ. So, but I want to get us to the lightning round because I know you've got to get ready for class here. So mm-hmm. here it is. Um, this uh, So one word that comes to mind when you think of education today. One word. Teacher. 
All right. Teachers. To me, education like is about te- teachers. I say yeah. great teachers can teach anything. It's the teachers. Mm. That's good. Biggest mm. obstacle to education that keeps each student from flourishing. So what's the obstacle that keeps each student from flourishing in schools today? Egos. Ah, great word. Best opportunity for education that leads to flourishing for each student. Hmm. Well, I would say change, crisis, crisis and change. Yeah. Right. No, it's good. Best book you've read in the past year. Oh, in the past year. Oh, I got two. I think just barely over a year ago, it was Adam Grant's Think Again. It was the Uh, book that it was very, and right now I'm reading uh, Ezra Klein, Why We Are Polarized. And, um, Uh, and it's, it's about identity and it's about the fact that we, we reinforce identities that keep us disconnected from each other and competing with each other. Mm. And I, it is, it's one of those books that's really reframing a lot of things for me. So no, it's good. A good pairing with think again. And I, I, mm-hmm. I love think again as well, uh, mainly because I love that confident humility idea that mm-hmm. he highlights. And I think as Christians, we should be leading the way on being confidently humble at knowing that there's truth out there, that there is an answer to be known, but we may need to find it with a lot of different perspectives getting us there. And so I, I, I think that was super helpful. And it seems like a nice pairing with Ezra Klein's book, which I have not read, which I think sounds like one I need to. And then one thing you would add to canoeing the mountains now that you have talked about it mm-hmm. and presented on it. song. one thing you would add at this mm-hmm. point that wasn't there in the initial draft. Well, it's so interesting because this is the question that I ask my students to do. Every student who okay. doctoral students or doctoral ministry student comes into class has read Canoe in the Mountains. That's why they took my class. So the first question I ask them today is, what do you wish I would think again about Canoe in the Mountains? What do you think I should do different? Mm. Every single one of them has said, and this is the world, the difference in the world that we're in today. Um, you, Sakagawea is the hero of the story and you bring her in way too late. Ah. Uh. And it's wow. true. Like, like the story of yeah. Lewis and Clark, yeah. it's not about Lewis and Clark. It's how Lewis and Clark right. finally listened to a teenage Native American nursing mother and how that got them through the mountains. It's about their adaptation to the terrain and their adaptation away from their assumption that they had all the ex- expertise. It was right in front of them. You brought her in too late, they said. You live in a world mm-hmm. where people don't e- won't even read that far into the book mm-hmm. or they assume you've centered it on again, two white guys from the East coast who are going to solve the problems of the world. And you, Mm. and you have marginalized the voice that needed to be heard. And so Mm. even I, I went back and redid the canoeing the mountains curriculum for, for a video curriculum. And I said, I'd only do it if I could start with, let me tell you about Chicago. Wow. That's great. Last question. A tempered leader is formed in the act of leading through reflection relationships and a rule of life in a rhythm of leading and not leading. So that's how you, uh, you, you included that and tempered resilience. What is your word of encouragement to educators who are listening right now? At the center of that process, reflection, relationships, a rule of life in a rhythm of leading, not leading. It, the center of that is like the anvil that the blacksmith, that all the work happens on the center of that is relationships. So my word for all leaders, but especially even for educators is do not do this alone. Who are your partners? Who are your mentors? Who are your friends? Who are the people who are in this work with you? Who are these people who will guide you in this work? And who are the people who take you away from this work? Cause they care about you even more than they care about your work and make sure that that's a thick, heavy anvil of relationships. Mm. 
Love that. Love that. Well, Todd, thanks for being with us today. We'll let you go get ready for class. My pleasure. Enjoyed your time. Yeah. Thanks very much. As you reflect on what Todd shared, uh, the kinds of connections we had over the things that we fail to let go of because of our desire to perform in a way that brings us glory in some way, instead of focusing on what matters most and eliminating the things that don't. I hope you'll take some time today to identify some things you're going to stop doing. One thing that we want to encourage you to do, if you have not already, is go to the Baylor MA and School Leadership website and look at the application process. That deadline is March the 1st. We are building our cohort three there. We're also launching the Academy for School Leadership this summer at Baylor, which will be hosted in Dallas, Texas, June 11th through the 14th. And so we hope that you'll come together with the people that we are gathering to do this work where we eliminate the things that don't matter. We stay focused on mission. We make that the priority and we encourage one another. So two deadlines to look for. March 1st is the deadline for the MA in school leadership. So just Baylor MA and school leadership and apply and then the june academy june 11th through the 14th will be in frisco texas actually just uh, outside of dallas look forward to seeing you have a great week thanks for listening this podcast is brought to you by baylor center for school leadership join us for our just schools academy this june where we will use dr eckert's book just teaching to do better work together Thank you.